Uh, well, a couple of weeks ago was the uh, General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, um, which I attended in Sydney. And in one of the talks, the preacher asked this question about the Presbyterian Church in New South Wales. He said, which of these best describes the Presbyterian Church? Is it a movement? Is it a monument? Or is it a mausoleum? Uh, is, it a, is it a movement of gospel-centred churches reaching their communities? Uh, is it a monument uh, preserving an organisation? Or worse, is it a shrine to something that died some time ago? Um, it's a good question to ask. And you can ask that about a denomination. Uh, you can also ask it about a local church. Um, I mean, what, what about us? Uh, are we moving forward in the mission that God has given us? Um, two other M words that I've heard to use to ask that kind of question are, are we in mission mode or are we in maintenance mode? Are we actively on mission for Jesus or are we simply keeping things going and maintaining the status quo? It's a good question to ask. <clears throat> And, of course, we can also ask that about ourselves. Um, would you say that you are on mission for Jesus? Or are we more um, just going through the motions in our Christian lives? Um, challenging questions, but it's the kind of questions that are raised uh, as we come to our passage today in the book of Acts. Uh, as I said, we're picking it up in chapter 13. And uh, if you're here with us last year, we looked at the first half of the book of Acts, the first 12 chapters. Um, and as a reminder, uh, mission is the big theme in the book of Acts. Uh, you might like to just flick back to chapter 1. There's a couple of key verses in Acts chapter 1, uh, which really set the program for the whole of the book. Um, so in Acts 1 uh, and verse 1, uh, it begins like this. Luke uh, is the writer, the same Luke who wrote the gospel about Jesus. He begins by saying, uh, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And really the key word there is the word began. Uh, the things that Jesus did in our world uh, that we read about in the gospels, well, that is just the beginning. Uh, and the book of Acts uh, is saying that Jesus is still at work carrying out his mission of salvation uh, now through the Holy Spirit and through his church. And so the mission, the work of Jesus continues. And if you look in Acts 1 verse 8, we see how this mission uh, unfolds in its uh, geographical expansion. So Jesus says this, uh, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And really that is then the program through the book of Acts. So that's where it begins, in, in Jerusalem. Uh, so in Acts chapter 2, uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out on God's people on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 people are believed and saved that day. And then from there, the mission begins to spread. And this is what we saw last year, um, Acts 2 to 7. Those chapters are really uh, seeing how the gospel spreads uh, throughout Jerusalem. Um, Acts chapter 8 uh, is Philip then taking the gospel down to Samaria. 
Uh, Acts 9 is that key moment where uh, Saul is converted and commissioned as the one who will take the gospel to the Gentiles. Um, Acts 10 to 12 is Peter taking the gospel further afield throughout Judea. And so by the time we get to the end of chapter 12, well, that first part of the program, uh, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem throughout Judea and Samaria, well, that part of the program is fulfilled. Which means now Acts 13, well, now is the time for the gospel to make its way to the ends of the earth. And so that's where we pick it up today. And uh, we're going to have a look at Acts 13 and 14. It's kind of a big section, but it's really one section. It's the, it's the first overseas mission journey. Uh, you might have heard of Paul's three different mission journeys that he goes on. Well, these two chapters are the first of those, uh, as he and Barnabas take the gospel to people and places where it hasn't reached before. And what I thought we'd do was just kind of have a bit of a look over those chapters to see the the places where they go and the kind of things they did. Uh, And then at the end I want us to dig a little deeper and to think about, well, really, what is the heart of mission? Uh, And then what is the power of mission? What is it that keeps the mission going? Um, So first of all, um, the mission trip. Here's a, a map Um, One of the slightly confusing things in these chapters is that there's two Antiochs. Um, So the place where they start, that's where I put the big X, um, that's Antioch in Syria, just sort of north of Israel. Uh, That's where, uh, in chapter 13, verse 1, we're told um, that uh, Saul and Barnabas have been. Um, So it begins there in 13, verse 1, uh, at the church in Antioch, uh, we're told that there are prophets and teachers uh, and it's quite an ethnically diverse bunch. Um, Barnabas, uh, who's from Cyprus, uh, Simeon and Lucius were most likely from North Africa, um, Menean is from Judah, Saul is from Tarsus. In verse 2, it says, While they were worshipping, the Holy Spirit says this, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after they had fasted and prayed, They placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now we're not told exactly there how the Holy Spirit uh, spoke on that occasion, may have spoken publicly, it may have been that a strong sense of God's will in this situation was given to those present. But again we see that the driving force behind the mission is, is the Holy Spirit. And so Barnabas and Saul are sent off. Uh, and this is really where we get the word mission from. Uh, mission's not a word that you find anywhere in the Bible. It's a Latin word uh, translating the word sent or to send. Uh, so keep that in mind. That what we're talking about when we use the word mission is this idea of, uh, of sending or being sent. And so that's what happens to Barnabas and Saul. They're sent. Uh, and in verse 4, not just by the church, but sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. And the first place they go is to the island of Cyprus. Uh, We're not told why they go there first. Um, It is where Barnabas is from, so maybe that's a reason why. Uh, But they move through this island and we're told they proclaim the word of God firstly in the synagogues. Uh, That's where the Jews uh, would gather. Uh, There'd be other God-fearing people there as well, so that would be a good starting point for ministry. Um, But Luke doesn't tell us about that. What he tells us about is what happens in Paphos as Saul and Barnabas meet a sorcerer uh, who is an advisor to the local Roman representative 
a proconsul named Sergius Paulus. Um, <clears throat> now, Ben read this bit before. Um, the name of the sorcerer is Bar-Jesus, which literally means son of Jesus. Um, but normally he goes by a different name, a Greek name, Elymas, um, himself uh, uh, maybe distancing himself uh, from being too closely associated with Jesus. Um, certainly we see how Saul distances himself from this sorcerer. Uh, he calls him a son of the devil, uh, full of trickery and lies, uh, perverting the ways of the Lord, and seeking, verse 8, to turn the proconsul away from embracing faith in Jesus. Now, it's here that Saul has a name change himself and uh, begins to be known by the, his Roman name, Paul. And it's also here that he performs his first sign, uh, causing Elymas, uh, this sorcerer, to lose his sight. Now, that might remind us of how that is what happened to Paul himself. Uh, that was God's judgment on Paul when he stood opposed to uh, Jesus and the gospel. He was blinded. Um, and that, that was actually God's mercy, uh, that God used that to see him come to believe. Now, we're not told if uh, the sorcerer has that kind of conversion, uh, like Paul did, but we are told that the proconsul does. Uh, verse 12, he believed... For he was amazed about the teaching of the Lord. Well, that's all that we're told about the mission uh, on Cyprus. Um, so next they set sail for Perga and uh, make their way then up to Antioch in Pisidia. Uh, so we're told about that from verse 13. Um, <clears throat> uh, now again, they enter the synagogue and uh, when given an invitation, uh, Paul stands and speaks. And we're given this speech here from verse 16. It's a long speech. Uh, it's much like Stephen's speech that we heard back in Acts chapter 8. Now, that time Paul was standing by listening and then approved of Stephen being stoned for the things he said, but he must have been listening because now he gives a very similar uh, speech. He begins by recounting the history of Israel and then proclaiming that Jesus is the fulfilment of all that Israel have been waiting for. So I won't look at this in much detail, but if you go to verse 23, um, <clears throat> he says that from this man, that's uh, King David, from his descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour, Jesus, as he promised. And verse 26, Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. Now, the message here is that the Jesus who was crucified, well, God has raised him from the dead. And so he is the fulfilment of Psalm 2, uh, as we see Paul quote from that over the page. And he is the fulfilment also of Psalm 16. He is the true son, the true king who lives forever. And what that means, Paul then summarises at the end in verse 38. He says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. 
See what Paul's saying there? He's saying that forgiveness is now available in Jesus. He's saying that being right with God is now available in Jesus. Being justified before him, which could never happen through keeping the law, well, that is now a gift that is available through Jesus. That's the good news. That's the message that they are sent to proclaim. But it does come with a warning. Uh, The warning is that the good news needs to be believed and received. See, in the past, God's people had heard the word and not believed. And Paul urges them not to make that same mistake again. He says, don't fulfill, in verse 41, don't fulfill that prophecy of becoming scoffers. Instead, take hold of this salvation, take hold of this good news by believing in Jesus. Now, what was the response to Paul's um, speech that day in Antioch? Well, we're told in verses 42 and 43 that there were some who did uh, respond with belief and were saved. And there are other groups as well. There were also some who, who heard and wanted to know more. And there must have been, I think, a lot of them who talked about what they heard during the next week. Uh, because we're told the next week, verse 44, the whole synagogue was packed out. The whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Uh, imagine that. But then we also hear another group. Uh, there were some who showed their opposition. And for us, I think, as we think about mission today, well, we should recognise that these are kind of typical responses uh, whenever the gospel is shared. And we'll see this right throughout the the rest of the book of Acts. Um, When the gospel is made known, there will be some who believe. There will be some who uh, will be opposed. But there will also be some who will have questions and who will want to know more. And and as a church, I mean, I think we need to be thinking about what, what is our plan here at St Aidan's for engaging all of those kinds of people? Now, this is a, one of the reasons why I'm, I'm glad that we're doing this work with uh, uh, City to City, to at least you know, ask, I mean, what, what is our plan? Uh, what, what's our plan for discipling those who, who come along and, and who do believe? Uh, what is our plan for helping those who have questions uh, to be able to, to speak about those things and to have that kind of discussion? Uh, What is our plan for answering those who oppose the gospel? Um, All of that is part of the mission. Now, the note on on which this chapter ends um, shows that ultimately the the result is not entirely dependent on us, but rather it's dependent on God and his mercy. It's a great verse here in verse 48. It says, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad... And they honoured the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now I think in that verse we see that as as, uh, the mission continues we kind of see here, well what is our part and what is God's part? 
Now, our part is to be speaking the word, and so I think we do want to think about how, how can we make all kinds of spaces to be engaging with people about the gospel. But God's part is to, to grant salvation. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now, at the end of chapter 14, we see that the opposition to Paul and Barnabas grows and they, they get moved on. Uh, by the Jewish leaders and so uh, the next stop on their mission trip is that they now head over to Iconium and I like before the same kind of uh, pattern continues they they go into the synagogue and they speak the message about Jesus and again there's these same uh, differing responses Um, so at the end of verse 1 it says a great number of Jews and Greeks believe but also verse 2 there's opposition Those who refused to believe stirred up others. So that verse 4, the city becomes divided and then there's a plot to have Paul and Barnabas stoned. But they hear about it and they now flee across to Lystra and then to Derbe. Now in Lystra, this is now very clearly uh, Gentile territory. There's no synagogue this time to go into to, to start their mission. Um, Instead, the nearby temple is in honour of Zeus. And very much like at the start of Jesus' ministry, well, here Paul uh, miraculously heals a lame man. And the response of the local priests is that the gods must have come down and made them present in Barnabas and Paul. Uh, But Paul wants to put that to rest. From verse 15 he speaks, and it's a a very different speech to what he gives uh, in the synagogue. Now, clearly he's very aware of the audience to which he's speaking uh, and he insists now that he's just a messenger, he's just a human being just like them but that there is a God who is the creator of all and who all are called on to worship. Uh, but once more Paul and Barnabas are, are forced to move on because of opposition. The, the Jews are doing the same mission trip Uh, following them around and moving them on. Uh, We're told that they win over the crowd and in verse 19, uh, Paul now is stoned and dragged out of the city as if dead. Um, But he's not quite dead. And the next day, we're told that he gets up and goes back into the city. Um, Maybe one day back in the city was enough because the, the next day he moves on to Derby. Uh, where we're simply told that they preached the gospel and a large number of disciples um, believed. And then uh, really the rest of the chapter uh, shows us, I've only put the arrows going one way, but the rest of the chapter then shows how they go back through those same places. Uh, It says in verse 22, uh, strengthening the disciples uh, and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And so really, that's uh, the first mission journey. Um, It's probably two to three years uh, that that trip takes. And as we've just seen, as we've looked over that, I mean, there's there's a lot of opposition. But I think on the whole, I mean, you'd have to say that that mission trip is a great success. The gospel is made known. And by God's grace, lots and lots of people put their faith in Jesus. And a whole lot of churches are established 
in places where the gospel has not penetrated before. And what an amazing thing for Paul and Barnabas to return at the end of that trip and to report on those things. That's what it says in verse 27. They reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, friends, we're doing some uh, vision thinking in our church about how it is that we could be uh, more effective in God's mission. Wouldn't it be amazing if in two to three years' time we could look back and give a report like that about what God had done through us? Uh, Because we were a church that that wasn't a, a mausoleum or a monument, but because we were a church who were on mission with Jesus. And I'd want to ask, I mean, would you pray about that? Uh, Would you make that your prayer uh, for our church, that we would be a church on mission for Jesus? And so to finish quickly today, I mean, what... I want to just ask kind of two things. What, what can we learn about mission uh, for us today? Uh, first, I think we need to consider, well, what is at the very heart of mission? Uh, what is at the beating heart and the, the centre of what uh, mission is all about? And I don't think it's very complicated because what I think we see here is that it is servants of God speaking the gospel of God. Uh, What is it that you need in order to be on mission? What are the essential ingredients? Well, I think you need people who speak the gospel. Uh, Here it's Paul and Barnabas, and everywhere they go, that's what they do. That's the mission. They're sent with the gospel, and so everywhere they go, they make it known. Uh, In 13 verse 5 at the beginning, I mean, they... They arrived at Salamis and it says they proclaimed the word of God. Um, Everywhere they go, in Antioch, we looked at the speech that Paul gives, speaking the good news about Jesus. Uh, In Iconium and Lystra and Derby, everywhere they go, the thing they do is they speak the gospel. But I think it's not only Paul and Barnabas doing the speaking. Um, If it was just the two of them, well, I think the growth would have been much less. Instead, obviously, those who hear them are doing a whole lot of speaking about what they heard during the week. I think that verse 1344, you know, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. It's a wonderful picture, but clearly for that to happen, for all of those people to to hear of what happened the previous Sabbath and then to become interested enough to turn up the next week, I mean, there must have been a whole lot of conversation going on uh, and a whole lot of inviting of friends and family members to come and hear. Now, that's how the mission began. And and really, this is how Christianity uh, managed to grow so rapidly in those first centuries. Um, A few years ago, um, Rodney Stark, who's a historian, wrote a book um, called The Rise of Christianity. Uh, really just looking at that as a sociologist. He, was not a, he, he might be a Christian now, but he wasn't a Christian at the time when he wrote this book, and just thinking, how did Christianity grow from such a, a small number of people, 120 people were told at the start of the book of Acts, 
to become by the third, end of the third century, probably five to seven and a half million people. How did it grow? Well, Stark concludes that the growth rate resulted primarily from interpersonal relationships, uh, really one person speaking the gospel to another. This is what he says, a um, bit of a complicated quote. Um, the basis for successful conversion movements is growth through social networks, through a structure of direct and intimate interpersonal attachments. Most new religious movements fail because they quickly become closed or semi-closed networks. That is, they fail to keep forming and sustaining attachments to outsiders and thereby lose the capacity to grow. Successful movements discover techniques for remaining open networks, able to reach out and into new adjunct social networks. And herein lies the capacity of movements to sustain exponential rates of growth over a long period of time. Now, I think that's kind of a complicated way of saying they invited their family and friends. <laughs> you know, how, does a, how does a denomination remain a movement? How does a church stay on mission? Well, I think we need to learn from those first on mission about how they just readily, naturally, persuasively, persistently reached out to those around them with the good news that they had received themselves. But of course, being on mission is not easy, and um, Paul knew that as well as every, anyone. And so if we're going to be a people and a church on mission, well, what, what is the, the power or what is the driving force that keeps the mission going? Well, ultimately, the main driver of mission is not us. It's not an it's not a apostle like Paul or Barnabas. It's not you or me, uh, but it is God. And it is his active participation that guarantees the ultimate triumph of the work. Now, we see that throughout the book of Acts uh, in 13 verse 2. I mean, that's the way that the, this mission trip began. It's in response to prayer that the Holy Spirit sent them on their mission. And as they go, it was the Lord who commanded them to be a light to the Gentiles. And as our passage today ends in 14 uh, 27, it says it was the Lord who opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And so here I'd want to say is both our motivation and our confidence for mission. We go because... The Lord, in his mercy, opened our eyes, gave us forgiveness and new life as he sent his son to die and rise again for us. And we go in confidence because it is his unstoppable mission to see the good news of his son made known to the very ends of the earth. Let me pray that God would help us as we seek to be his people on mission. Father God, it is our great desire to see the good news of Jesus uh, made known and embraced and to see people come to find salvation and hope and new life in him. Father, we pray that you would be doing that work through us. Uh, pray that you would equip us 
uh, motivate us and, and send us out as your servants into your great mission. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.